Hey there, and welcome to Being at Work. I'm your host, Andrea Butcher, and I love what we're doing on this show. I am passionate about highlighting CEOs and executives who are leading their teams well and are open and vulnerable and talking about challenging moments they've led through. So I've really appreciated connecting with today's guest, Brad Bostick. Our conversation reminded me of a season in which I reported to a big picture leader who was perpetually spouting ideas. I was never sure if he was sharing something that he wanted me to act on or if he was just spouting ideas. Well, Brad has learned the value of being intentional about what and with whom he's communicating as he is innovating. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of HC1, a leader in precision health. The organization has grown at an exponential pace using machine learning to identify hidden health risks across more than 22,000 healthcare locations and 160 million patients. With its unique insights into lab results, HC1 is supporting our nation's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Through a local risk index it provides for free to the public at cv19-dashboard.org. Brad is a results-oriented leader and investor who's passionate about positively transforming healthcare. His entrepreneurial spirit is alive as he naturally sees potential and opportunities. And he's learned that when you're the CEO, people assume you've thought about the ideas you're sharing. So he's learned to use a framework to innovate and most effectively communicate along the way. I see what he's doing as an innovation framework for high-performing organizations. Check it out. I've always been somebody who paid a lot of attention to where major challenges existed, and I would lean in and try to come up with ideas for addressing those challenges. I guess it's it's kind of a blessing and a curse for anybody else who is entrepreneurial in that way can appreciate. And uh, back when I was a student at Indiana University, the e-commerce trend was really starting to emerge. It was 1995 specifically when I started my first real company selling college textbooks with the business plan being to do all of that online. And when you're just on your own and you might have a couple of your buddies who are helping you out for a a small amount of compensation and, and really the desire to have the experience, you can basically just talk openly about all your thoughts and ideas on an ongoing basis. But when you start moving into building larger companies where you have a lot of employees, you have to be very smart. And I learned early in my career that when I would come to work and have a new idea that might have just popped into my head five minutes prior to that, that if I started talking about it, that people would wonder, well, is that something I should make a priority? Or is this something that is just uh, more of a a half-baked idea? And that led to a lot of issues because people would get bogged down and end up facing these challenges on where to prioritize and where to focus. So certainly, uh, as we've grown HC1, uh, which is the seventh company I've been involved with starting in terms of the founder or one of the businesses I built, I was co-founded with another individual. 
And when you get into the point where you're approaching 100 or you know, going beyond 100 people, uh, you really have to have a framework to follow so that you can execute on the current core business while you do work on how you innovate moving forward. And so thankfully, through the School of Hard Knocks, I was able to learn how to approach that more effectively and, and also through a lot of reading about how other people handle these kinds of challenges in innovative businesses. Yeah. How did you come to realize that? I mean, was there feedback you were getting? Was it something just intuitively you felt like, okay, people are confused here? What made you realize that? Thankfully, I had some people who were very comfortable with communicating with me directly. And I I try to be somebody who's approachable and uh, who welcomes feedback. And I remember one of our team members took me aside and said, I have to tell you, our team has become really confused about which thing they should focus on because last week you started talking about this other opportunity that you were interested in pursuing. And so we really need clarity. And I kind of laughed and I said, gosh, that was just something that I had come up with that morning. I had actually had forgotten about it by now. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was sort of like, you know, I would have to be completely asleep at the wheel to not recognize that 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 was an approach that wouldn't work. And that, frankly, they had assumed that I had given it a lot of thought before I presented this new idea, which was not the case at all. So I I didn't repeat that mistake again, thankfully, because frankly, as an innovative company, you can really derail your initiatives and demoralize your team and waste a lot of resources and time. And ultimately, I think fail if you aren't really careful about what you share with the team and determining who on the team really is the right person to talk to about innovation and new ideas versus where are those people that are best suited focusing on the here and now. What a great leadership lesson. Yeah, thank goodness for the feedback that you received. I could see people like- Probably saved my career. (laughs) Yeah, because I could see them off and running, starting to execute on something that you were no longer even thinking about. Yeah, that that was a problem. So in looking at that challenge, I spent a lot of energy reading books like the Jim Collins books, who which he has, I think, just a fantastic series starting with Beyond Entrepreneurship all the way through Great by Choice and learned a lot from that. Spent time reading some of the, the Drucker, you know, management books, which are a little bit more dry, but nonetheless, just chock full of really good guidance. And then also tried to really understand what the real titans of industry and technology were doing. Uh, One of those is Jeff Bezos, who clearly has created this really interesting innovation engine. Uh, And then I also actually studied some of what McKinsey and some of the other major firms do where they provide management consulting. And and really where I landed was in order to innovate, you do have to make sure you're preserving the core of what you are good at. And also you have to continue to stimulate progress. And that there are really three distinct horizons that the most innovative companies operate along. The first horizon is really where you're focused on your current core economic engine. So these are the things that you've been developing for quite some time. You've been marketing, you've been selling, you've got customers who are using those uh, solutions. You've got metrics on the impact they can make. 
you've got the ability to continue enhancing those solutions, but it's more of just this day-to-day activity that you need to execute on in order to make your immediate numbers. So that's the preserving the core of what you're good at that you talked about earlier. That's right. Yeah. So, so, uh, and, and Jim Collins uses that, that term preserve the core while stimulating progress and that the world's best companies have been incredibly effective at that. But the other problem is you have this innovator's dilemma where if all you do is preserve the core, eventually someone else will leapfrog you, you know, you will be disrupted. And so that's where you need more than just the first horizon, where it's your core economic engine that keeps the lights on and makes your next board meeting positive. Uh, You need the second horizon as well, which is more of the emerging early commercialization type of, of offering. So these are things that you've already determined there's a need in the market and you've been investing in, but now they're just coming to market. And if you look at Amazon's model, They've done that across a series of product offerings and even brand new business lines, many of which haven't worked. If you read the Everything Store, it's pretty clear that Amazon has had a culture where they try a lot of things and keep what works and not everything works. But ultimately, that's how you end up finding these breakthroughs that end up resulting in your second horizon, which is this next big wave of growth that you're going to achieve. So in the early days, Amazon would offer just books for sale on their website, and then they added music, and then they added movies, and each one of those were basically becoming the next horizon for them. So while they preserved their focus on books, they added in this early new offering of uh, music and then movies, and then ultimately got to the point where They said, well, we've got this massive e-commerce infrastructure and all this technology that supports it, and we could offer that underlying platform as a cloud service to other employers, and that resulted in Amazon Web Services. So it's really critical that you have that second horizon focus where you're going to find what that next big breakthrough is, but you're not distracting or diluting your core team that is focused on the first horizon. You're being really intentional and clear about, hey, this is our next bet and we've done all this work to make sure that it's going to be the right thing, but there's never a guarantee. But, you know, unless you, like, I guess it's the whole, uh, I think Michael Jordan said, you you miss every shot you don't take. So you've got to start taking shots. So that's horizon number two, emerging opportunity. Yeah, and then the third horizon is more of the part where you really have to be careful about who you discuss it with, because these are the aspirational next level breakthroughs that are for the people who are focused and are better suited for the first horizon. You'd probably completely freak them out if you said, hey, I'm thinking about how we can go do this. You know, it's it's kind of like if you had a, a business in air travel And you were going from doing intercontinental air travel to saying, hey, we want to fly to Mars, you know, and we think we can. Everybody might say, well, gosh, that's not the business that we're in. We're not in space travel. But ultimately, you might be able to work to that. And that might be that next uh, big breakthrough. So the the third horizon tends to be best served by uh, having a what I would consider like a, a one or two pizza team which is another uh, Amazon type of, of descriptor, which is really saying this is not a big team. This is a team you could feed with one pizza or two pizzas. And 
it's a group though that is more of those innovators that you can invest in to say, hey, here's a direction that that seems to make sense. Why don't you all go out there? It's almost being like a search party where you're going out ahead of the rest of the group to go sort of use your machete and, and cut your way through the brush to ultimately see if there's this next destination out there that's even better than the one where you are. And then once you start seeing that, yeah, this is the right path, you start bringing people more along with you. And ultimately, those third horizon initiatives become second horizon. So you know, I can explain how that, that fits with HC1 as well. Um, but j- j- does that make sense? Yeah. So what I hear in that, and, and then, yeah, let's connect it back as you're doing naturally back to focusing your communication efforts. So to innovate, like operating against these three horizons, the first one being your core economic engine, like what you're, what the business is really good at. Second horizon being those opportunities that are emerging or are coming to the organization, those things that you can see on the horizon. I would specifically call that the early commercialization. So this is horizon two is where you have a product now and you've got the planning in place and you've aligned your marketing and communications and sales and technology and service and support. It's ready to go, but it's like day one for a new startup inside your business. That's really what Horizon 2 is. Uh, So I want to be clear, it's early commercialization, not as much the sort of way out there. It's been validated. Maybe with Horizon 2, you've already gotten your first couple of customers who are pilot accounts, and now you're saying, let's go big with this. I love that. Yeah. And I, I get that distinction because three then is the super ambitious, you said aspirational next level. So the moonshot kinds of opportunities. That's right. And if you look at the Amazon example, again, there are a lot of those that didn't work out, like when they did the Fire Phone. But ultimately, the Fire Phone wasn't a total loss or failure because they incorporated all kinds of the lessons learned and the technologies they developed into other products that they offered. I think you know the same thing holds true with the work that Google tried to do with their uh, healthcare initiative, and they ultimately shut it down. It was focused on this personal health record. Those kinds of things, even though you might not hit the goal exactly as you expected, you learn a lot and gain a lot from it. I think the key is that you don't allow those third horizon experiments to pollute the second horizon and the first horizon. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing is keeping them distinct. Yeah, helps you to focus and communicate most effectively with your team members. That's right. Like if you go into a company meeting, like at HC1, we have a cadence where we do a quarterly meeting that's more of a full uh, deep dive into how we're tracking against our annual and quarterly objectives. And then we do these twice a month uh, town hall type meetings where it's more of just a, a conversational, uh, hey, here, how is it going? Here are some of the key stories that we've seen from customers. Here are some of the team members who are really stepping up, that sort of thing. Um, in those meetings, you're not really talking about Horizon 3. You know, you're talking about Horizon 1 and you're talking about Horizon 2 and you're making it really clear how you execute on Horizon 2 or what your plans are, but you still make sure that the Horizon One work continues forward. Now, there it is uh, something where there are some trade-offs there because when you light up a new early commercialization opportunity, and it's potentially like let's say a new product within a suite that's already in Horizon One, you have to be really clear on how you communicate Horizon Two 
as a, a new member of that same product family, even though you've had a separate team that started that from scratch and incubated it through the third horizon and then brought it to the second horizon once it passed certain tests of, hey, this is real. So there's a lot of nuance under underneath this in terms of the execution, but at a high level, yeah, you just need to really keep these separate and keep the focus there so that you can get further faster. So each one of those groups is doing less better and getting further faster instead of having everybody trying to do everything. Yeah, that's good. Well, and so there's there's a lot of talent implications in that. So you, you've talked about how this drives communication. You know, I think it also lends itself then to who's best suited for each of those horizons, like putting people in the business who are in the best position to lead in each of those. How, how does that play out for you? Yeah, that's right. And as an executive who has had to do it all at a given point in time, especially if you're a, a, an executive who's built something out of nothing, Sometimes it can be easy to, to not recognize that it's, it's uncommon and, and almost non-existent for a lot of people to be able to be athletic enough to play every position. And you know, not just athletic, but also have the IQ and the experience. And so you have to become more specialized over time. And I, I'll say as well, earlier in my career, I was not nearly as mindful of or aware of the fact that we were trying to hire unicorns that just didn't exist, you know? So it was like we, we'd, we'd struggle. We'd get one person who could do the job and then we'd try to hire the second one and everything would fall apart. And you all of a sudden realize, well, actually it's because you need to be a bit more specialized and determine who is best at the operational excellence that it takes to operate on the first horizon of the core business, some people really get excited about that, about you know tuning and tuning and and digging in and supporting existing customers and that sort of thing. But then there are other people who that would just absolutely be their worst nightmare. You know, they want to be out there coming up with new ideas and and generating innovative discussions and and those are the people that fit better at the third horizon. So you just have to have job descriptions and we do some, some profiling processes where our candidates will go through, you know, a set of questions and then it produces an analysis that says, you know, objectively, this is what you probably fit best with. So yeah, there is a lot of diligence though that goes into trying to put people in the right spots. Yeah, I get that. And I just, the value then for them, like being in a role that's aligned to their strengths and what they're good at. Absolutely. And, and that sometimes can change. Sometimes people start in a certain area and for their career to progress, maybe they move uh, further upstream into more of the second horizon and, and they have all the knowledge about what the core customer base needs as that next big capability. So you got to just have a really strong, as you know, talent function that provides the structure and has those feedback loops to understand how engaged people are whether or not those people are uh, feeling like they're gaining the fulfillment that they really are after. Uh, you know, you have to have this purpose to get people to do the very difficult work that we do in healthcare. So ensuring that you have people in the right seats is obviously critical. And if you look at the HC1 strategy related to the, the horizons that I've described, we started out saying there's a massive need in healthcare to break the status quo and make it so that instead of one size fits all trial and error care, you're able to deliver precision healthcare that's personalized for every person at scale. And so then we had to say, well, how do you do that? Well, lab data was the data set that was most scalable and told the broadest story 
of what was going on across the whole healthcare continuum nationally. Whether you're sick or healthy or somewhere in between, you end up having a lab, lab test performed. And that generates all kinds of important data points, especially when looked at over time, that start to give you predictive capabilities and the opportunity to identify hidden risks that just don't get picked up on by sort of the, the, the typical caregiver process where they're looking at things more in a silo. And so that was the first horizon. It was, we're going to focus on our core of transforming lab data into personalized healthcare insights and working with labs to do that. And we're going to provide CRM-like capabilities for those labs that transform all this lab data into the more robust profiles so they better understand the business they're in and how to operate better. And then ultimately, as that really started to, uh, that flywheel, again, to use another Jim Collins uh, metaphor, that flywheel started to spin. Then we said, well, the next level of value for this insight is to go into the bigger integrated delivery network health systems and help them ensure every patient is getting exactly the testing that they need, that there's not wasteful testing and there's not mistesting. Because if you don't test people correctly, you miss the hidden risk. And then you end up with people who have renal failure who never should have gotten to that point because you weren't on top of it. And frankly, our caregivers are so time-starved. They've got an impossible task to do this manually. And this is where using machine learning in the cloud has given us this big opportunity. But at one point, that was our second horizon. And that's moved more now into a core first one as we've grown, right? So that's how we've been building on this horizon model. And there are lots of big things out there in horizon three. I think we have enough opportunity for the next 50 years already queued up uh, at HC1. Well, yeah. And, and the, the thing about the horizon three, too, is just the possibility. I mean, I love the dreaming in that. And how do you determine, because you had made the, the point earlier that, you know, eventually some of those will become Horizon 2 initiatives or focus areas. How does that happen? Yeah, well, ultimately, customers are going to be the, the test and people vote with their dollars and they vote with their focus and their attention. And so when you're in Horizon 3 and you get to where you've got a a, a a strong enough ability to explain what you're looking to provide, you've got to engage advisors who are actually those representative leaders who would be your customers. And I think the real trigger is when you get at least two, but ideally five or six, and this is more of an enterprise selling I'm talking about. If you're dealing with consumers, you know, five or six isn't nearly enough. You're talking about they're more like, you know, 50,000 or 60,000 individual consumers. But in the case of selling to say a big health system, if you can get two to five of those health systems you trust to say, yes, this is valuable, I will uh, embrace this, or health plans, or whoever your target customer base is, and you sign those initial contracts, even if they're pilot agreements, they need to have some level of compensation and commitment on the, the part of those customers. And that's the trigger that makes it so you can actually uh, know that you're not just dealing with a false positive and, and actually have a, a negative that's just a sample size that's too small. So you move this into Horizon 2 at that point and then resource it more fully. So initially, it's like the Skunk Works team that is out there doing everything and figuring it out. And you know, we recently did that with our precision prescribing offering, PRX Advisor, where we had a leader who had come from pharmacy who focused for two years on incubating this 
big idea of how do we now ensure every individual gets the optimal prescription all the way down to their unique genetic profile. And then once that was proven and working and we had a number of customers that were validating it, that became something we announced and now we're out there selling that value and it'll be you know, the, a, a size of a contract for that is, is 10 to 20 times the size of a contract for our first horizon offerings. That's exciting. Yeah, that's a good example. I can see how that plays out. Well, so back to the framework, you know, it's, it, we started this conversation around focusing communication. And so you've outlined this operating framework that is a great way for you to determine what to communicate and to whom. What, what else in that is helpful for leaders? And how, how do you, like, is this across HC1? Is this common language? Are you telling other leaders in your business? Or is this just, is it just natural? Does it just play out? No, within our senior leadership team, we have a, a weekly meeting. We call our, our level 11 meeting, which I'll spare you the, the backstory on that. But the L11 meeting with the senior leadership team, we talk in terms of the horizons. Uh, we're, we're, very much on the same page about the fact that we're always working to find that next breakthrough and we're preserving the core while stimulating progress following the three horizon model. Uh, and that communication does cascade throughout the organization to a certain degree. But it, you know, if you're an engineer executing on core product extensions, you may not be super fluent in that multi-horizon uh, conversation, but you will know what it is because you will have seen a, us present that uh, at, at company meetings. But the, the, the other piece that is really critical, uh, that the horizons help you organize your thinking and focus and expectations for what you should be getting out of the, the different commercial initiatives that you have. But then if you actually go build a business you need a really strong operating model to go execute. Uh, we follow this model I told you about. Uh, we follow EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System. But whatever model you follow, I think it's just important for that to become integral to your culture. And, and you need to have it so that everybody from the top to the bottom to the front to the back, you know, and everybody in between says the same things and, and follows the same process. With respect to our um, operating model that we follow, uh, we establish through a very deep, uh, focused set of meetings, usually at the end of the third quarter of the year, looking forward to the next year. So we're not at the last minute, you know, as the year's ending, trying to say, what are we going to do next year? We're trying to get further ahead of that. And we establish three to five objectives. We call them rocks for the company. And then we work with our, uh, we have the leaders of each one of the departments in our company work with their key leaders and team members to identify what those most important initiatives are that they will need to accomplish in order to help the company achieve its objectives. And it truly is the case that every single person across the company should at any given time know for the next 90 days what their three to five objectives are and how those link to the company's objectives and then we're continuously evaluating those, making sure that we're setting the right objectives. If we don't, why? Was it specific and measurable or not? Uh, and so that operating model, I'd say, is like the really critical next thing because you know, it's helpful to have yourself organized around the horizons. But if then once you start to execute, your customers are disenchanted and your, your team members are totally burnt out and you have no way to know that, that's not going to work out. Sounds like it's the more focused what 
And there, there are really two things that I hear coming out of that for a team member within your organization. Like now I'm aligned with what's happening within the organization. It sounds like in all ways, up and across and down, there's alignment. It also feels really clear. You know, Brene Brown has that quote, clarity is kindness. And it feels like each person then is really clear on where they're focused, how they're adding value, again, how that's aligned with moving the business forward. No doubt about it. I think focus and clarity, those are the, the keys and they're, and they're not easy. And, and certainly the things that I'm involved with, we try really hard to establish the focus and it's in an environment that's very dynamic. And so you have to also have a process that accommodates change because every single year when any company creates their budget for the next year, you can always almost guarantee that it is wrong. It will not end up being what they put out there. They'll either be above it or below it, but it, you still have to create it. And then you have a way to adapt to your changes. And heck, COVID's a great example. The one thing that is for sure this year is that everybody's plans changed. No matter what your plans were, they changed this year, no matter where you lived. And so our operating model allowed us to align everybody and update our objectives and quickly move on a dime. And within a matter of a couple of weeks, we had a game-changing COVID-19 local risk index analytics dashboard out there. And that ended up becoming a significant enhancement to the profile of our company and is ultimately making what we do that much more valuable and making it recognized and we're growing as a result. But without this operating model, it wouldn't matter if we had had a great idea, we wouldn't have been able to adjust so quickly. Yeah, because you had a system, right? You had a system to adjust within. Right, yeah, and people understood it. And so they said, okay, this makes sense. This is why we're doing it. This is a fantastic moment in time for us to showcase the impact of insights and identifying these hidden risks from this massive corpus of lab data, which understand we literally have hundreds of millions of lab results every single month of all kinds flowing into our platform. And that's inclusive of all these COVID-19 tests and the results. And so we could really deliver something unique and special and powerful and change the world for the better at a time when it's needed most. Yeah. You're, you're I mean, you're part of the recovery effort. So your team members must feel that like that's got to there's a much bigger purpose and a much bigger why in that. I suspect that you're seeing a high level of engagement right now. There's no doubt that the purpose of what we're doing is more palpable than ever. And the team sees that, wow, this really is world changing what we're doing. And then the other thing I would say is our team is very motivated to not let their team members down. You know, they have, because we, we have this really talented, high performance team and they're all counting on each other to deliver and do their job so that we can meet our goals and address these very challenging needs for our clients that literally relate to the health of tens of millions of people in, in any given year in the aggregate, hundreds of millions of people. So we absolutely, I think, have the kind of environment and culture where people do find purpose in the work that we do. Yeah, I can see that. Well, and you're bringing it to life through these systems. Brad, I so appreciate you unpacking all this for us. I mean, what started out as focusing your communication efforts, like you really broke that down and using this operating framework and you outlined the three horizons and how then because of those, you're in a position to really focus like what you communicate and to whom. 
you are communicating it. So thank you for that. As you look back, because you've had quite a journey starting your first business in 1995 and now leading such relevant, important work at HC1, what's your biggest piece of advice for leaders, emerging leaders, new leaders? What is the thing that you think is most important? I think it's incredibly valuable to learn from people that you aspire to be like and recognize that those people that you would most admire were in your spot at one point and that everybody enjoys building relationships, your life, your career. It's really all about the series of relationships that you build. It's not really about did you make the most money or not, or did you take a risk that didn't pay off and did that define you in some certain way? And I think if you focus on really aligning with and asking to hear the stories of those people who are people you want to be like and learning from their recipes, I think you can save yourself a lot of time and make your mission much more effective along the way. And I guess the other thing I would say is try to be in a business model where you have recurring revenue. It sounds really basic, but it took me a while to figure that out. And and uh, I think I, I could have created a lot more value in my early career if I had understood how to do that or that that was an important focus. My dad, who was a banker, would say things like, do a business where you make money while you sleep. And I could never understand what he actually meant when I was like in high school, you know, like, what do you mean? And uh, I think what he meant was do something that has recurring revenue. You know, if you're a banker, you're renting people money and they pay the interest, you know, all night long, right? Which is what business he was in. Yeah, I'd I'd say that's the biggest thing. I've had such good fortune with people uh, whether it is my dad or or my father-in-law who both have been very successful business people and taught me a lot or other business partners who have built fantastic, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses. You just have to ask them, "Hey, tell me about your story. Like I want to hear what you did and how you did it." And those are things that just in the cumulative end up becoming what define who you are and help you achieve really big things. That's the spirit of being at work is tell me about your story and then all the lessons and insights that emerge from that are so good. Interesting. See there? And we didn't even talk about that. Before, so. <laughs> I love it. so good. So if, if our listeners want to connect with you, what's the, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, the best way would be LinkedIn. And uh, it's just Brad Bostic. My last name's B-O-S-T-I-C. So find me on LinkedIn and uh, in your invite to say you uh, heard the podcast here and I'm happy to connect and uh, collaborate. Great. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story.